Revelation chapter 14. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps, and they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is those who have not defiled themselves with, with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, said the Spirit, that they may rest from their labours, for their deeds follow them. Sharon, thanks so much for reading the passage for us. Um, Brian would have just dropped the, the handout in the chat. So if you do have the handout open, perhaps on your screen or on your phone, uh, you'll find it helpful to follow along. And it'll also be helpful to, to have a Bible open in front of you to look at a passage of Revelation 14. Well, here is an illustration that I've stolen from an American preacher. His name is James Hamilton. And the reason why I'm stealing the illustration is because um, yeah, it's a very good illustration. Um, and his illustration goes like this. He, he speaks about a lady named Julia Allison, um, who has written an article, How Sex and the City Ruined My Life. Uh, for those who are not aware, Sex and the City is a US TV series. And in the article, Julia writes that she aspired to live the, the Carrie Bradshaw life. Uh, in the show Carrie Bradshaw, she is a dating columnist. She's one of the main characters. She loves living the high life, the glamorous parties, the branded handbags, and really loves kissing boys. And so Julia, she, she modeled her life after Carrie in the show. Uh, she, she moved to New York and she became a dating columnist. And this is what she said in her article. Uh, the show was my roadmap. I also subscribed to Carrie's ethos when it came to men. There was no such thing as a bad date, only a good date or a good brunch story. Well, as you can imagine, uh, Julia's actions, well, it resulted in a bit of bad press as she began to gain a bit more fame. 
Um, she had her fair share of online critics uh, and uh, people accused her, uh, forgive the language, of being a fame whore. And eventually that really got to her and it broke her. And so she decided to stop being like Carrie. And this is what she writes in her article. I'm finally living the life of integrity, attuned to my values. I've never heard of values on sex and the city. Well, that's not true. Uh, she did hear of values. Uh, she heard about how to relate to other men and what kind of life to aspire after. Well, you might be wondering what has Julia and sex and the city have to do with us today? I want to suggest actually a lot. You see, every one of us, in one sense, is like Julia Allison. You see, every one of us, we, we have a story by which we interpret our lives now. See, for Julia, it was Carrie Bradshaw, uh, the main character in Sex and the City. For us, it might be what we hear from our parents, or what we hear from our friends, or the education or schools that we grew up in, or the media. Uh, here's a story that I've heard when I was growing up. Uh, when Before you hit 20, make sure you study hard, uh, get good grades. Of course, I'm a Singaporean, so you study really hard. Uh, before you hit 30, you, you find a good job, uh, preferably a doctor, a lawyer, or a banker. Maybe these days uh, you work for a fintech. Uh, if you can, you travel as much as possible. Uh, you buy your first house, you get married, and maybe you have kids. Well, by the time you hit 40, uh, you want to advance in your career. Uh, you want to upgrade your house to a condominium. Uh, you get your kids to study as hard as you did. Uh, you save for retirement, take care of your parents. And by 60, uh, achieve financial freedom, retire early, and enjoy the good life. You see, whether we realize it or not, everyone has a story to interpret their lives now. Well, the question is, what is your story? See, and that's where the book of Revelation comes in. See, over the past few weeks, if you've been following in our series, we've been arguing that the book of Revelation is describing what now is for. And we've seen that it's almost as if God puts his finger on the pause button. Uh, he holds the end of the world back. Uh, there was a pause between the sixth and the seventh seal, the sixth and the seventh trumpet, uh, to hold the end of the world from coming. And so the passages in between the six and the seven was to describe the delay, a wider pause is there. And more than that, Revelation is revealing what is real, uh, what is happening now. Uh, we talked about Revelation uh, being a pair of heaven's glasses. Uh, the heaven's view, uh, the understanding of what is really happening now. And not just a story, but the story of the age we are in. And you see chapters 12 to 15, if you can see in the handout um, and the structure, is the central turning point in the whole book. It is to reveal what now is for. Well, last week, if you were here with us looking at chapters 12 and 13, we put on heaven's glasses and we saw what the devil was doing now. And the big idea that we saw, if you can remember, is that he is he's stealing the worship of the nations. He's deluding the world away from God. 
not because he he loves people, but because he he really hates God. And how does he do so? Well, he does so by summoning two beasts, a counterfeit lamb, the first beast, the one who had a mortal wound but was healed. And also the second beast, the counterfeit witness, one who encourages worship of the beast. And so he, his, his theft of, of worship is not only happening uh, through other religions in this world, but everywhere uh, in culture, in society, well, in the air that we breathe. And so the 21st century lie of I'm essentially a good person, the lie of the decent and respectable life, uh, the lie that we believe when we look around the people around us, well, that is the devil uh, laughing and his beast hard at work behind the scenes. Last week, we ended on an ominous note. Uh, people who suffer financially, when they, they, they don't side with the beast. In verse 18, it ended this way, this calls to wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of the man, and his number is six, six, six. The question that we left off last week was, will the satanic trinity, the dragon and his two beasts, will they win? Well, if you're following the handout, we are on our first point. The lamb and his army, will they fight back? Look at chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the lamb, and with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name, written on their foreheads. What a sight. Uh, it's the lamb from chapter 5, the lamb who was slain, the true lamb, not the counterfeit lamb, who appears on Mount Zion to confront the beast. And I think the reason why John describes them as Mount Zion is not so much for its geographical location, but for its theological significance. See, Mount Zion was the location of the Old Testament temple, uh, the place where heaven and earth met. And so the victory that was won in heaven in chapter 12, well, it begins to touch the earth today. Mount Zion is also, according to Psalms 2, is the place where God's messianic king will stand in victory. But unlike Psalms 2, uh, the lamb-like king, he's not standing alone. With him, he has an army. The 144,000 uh, we saw in chapter 6, there was a military census describing an army. And so the Lamb summons the army, the 144,000 for war, to confront the unholy trinity, the ancient serpent and his beast. Well, surprisingly, John, he, he zooms in, well, not on the Lamb, but on the army. I looked at verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like a roar of many waters like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpers playing on their harps. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. John, he hears a loud voice. The volume is cranked up to his maximum. It's like the roar of Niagara Falls. But the sound that he hears... Well, it's the sweet sound of singing. Uh, it's a new song. The song that we've heard before, 
in chapter 5, verse 9, as the saints around the throne are described singing a new song, singing, Worthy is the Lamb. But here in our passage today, the song that they were singing in heaven is now descending upon the earth. And as the singing descends from heaven, we hear another choir while starting to sing. Uh, the singing ascends to meet the heavenly chorus in the air. Well, it's the singing of the 144,000 on the earth in worship of the Lamb. See, the picture that we have here is the Lamb's army worshipping him in song. Well, as we hear the music of the, the multitude in our ears, John, he goes on to describe the traits of the army. Look at verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. Uh, the first trait of the 144,000, uh, they were men not default, who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. I'm sure that sounds a bit strange to our ears um, as we read about this army, but remember this is a vision. Um, as with the 144,000, it does not refer to literally 144,000 individuals. But rather the picture of, of not uh, defiling with women is an Old Testament picture as Israel goes to war, they abstain from sexual relations. I've put a couple of Old Testament references on the handout. Uh, there's one in Deuteronomy 23, but also 2 Samuel 11. You might remember Uriah, when he comes back from the war, he doesn't sleep with his wife Bathsheba in the midst of battle. At a point here in, in Revelation describing this army as virgins, um, that is to say they have been abstaining from sexual relations ever since birth, I guess it's to make the point that they are an, an uber-holy um, army, an, an ultra-holy army in, in battle. And remember, this is not a literal description, but it's a metaphor for moral purity. That this is a morally pure army who are not defiled. But the next trait that we read about this army uh, is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. Uh, the lamb, well, is the lamb who was slain. And to follow him, it means to follow him to death. And so the army is an army of cross carriers, uh, the army of people who are willing to lay their life down for others. The next thread that we read about them is that they are redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. Uh, the conjunction for, well, it indicates purpose. They were saved for God and for the Lamb to worship them. But the language of first fruits, well, it also indicates that they, they are the first of many, that there are more to be brought in. And the fourth trait, uh, maybe the most significant one, is that in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. You remember last week, the dragon and his beasts, uh, their main weapons were lies, deception, and blasphemy. But here, the army and the weapons that they're using is, is truth. No lie in their mouths were found. And here, telling the truth is not avoiding telling white lies. Uh, the truth here is truth with a capital T. 
Chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is described as the true and faithful witness. It is his witness about himself uh, that is the first and the last, the living one, the one who died and is alive forevermore. This is the army. Uh, it's morally pure. They follow the lamb to his death. They are the first of many, and they speak truths about Jesus. Now imagine your, your favorite epic movie, battle scene, uh, the satanic trinity versus the lamb and his army. For me, it's the, the battle of Pelennor Fields and Lord of the Rings, or it's Helm's Deep, um, the white rider charging down the deep with the riders of Rohan. But stop for a moment. See, this battle was different. See, the satanic trinity will use force and threats and lies, but the way the lamb fights is not with swords and spears, but with worshipping the lamb. They don't fight with guns or rifles, but with moral purity and speaking the truth. They don't fight with suicide bombs strapped to their chest, but by laying their lives down for others. See, this is the great epic battle, the war over the worship of the nations. Well, as the lamb and his army, they fight back. What does it mean for the nations who are watching on? And that's where we come to our second point, if you're following the handout. Well, it results in a global call for repentance. You see, as the lamb's army, as they witness unto death, the nations are presented with a choice, a call to worship the one true God, and is symbolized by three angels flying overhead. I look at the first angel in verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those dwelling on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So what we see here is an objective call to worship. And the point is that you cannot live in God's world and direct your worship elsewhere. Um, as the, the lamb and his army, as the army worships him, uh, they are showing what it means to truly worship the one true God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. And as they worship, they're calling the nations to join in. And not only is there a call to true worship, this was also a warning. I look at the second and third angel in verse 8. Another angel, the second, followed saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives the mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he'll be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment will go up forever and ever, and they will have no rest, day or night, these worshippers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. The second and third angel, they pronounce a warning to the world, uh, following the devil, is not neutral. 
See, for those who believe the lie about the decent life, the, the, the so-called comfortable alternative, uh, to enjoy life and rot into nothingness, well, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, the full wrath, not partial. He also will suffer the smoke of torment going up forever and ever, forever not limited. See, there's nothing neutral about living the lie of the devil, rejecting the creator God, persecuting the saints, worshipping other gods of materialism and me. Well, it's a grave warning to the nations. And that is the, the effect of the army. As they witness unto death, uh, they show the world uh, what's to come. Uh, they show that they're living for a world to come. And because they show that there's eternal life, that means there also is eternal judgment. They offer a call to worship God and a warning to the world. And so this is what is at stake as the Lamb's army fights back against the satanic trinity. The nations are offered a choice, a face eternal judgment or repent. And as the army fights back, it gives hope to the nations. Well, I, I started this talk by sharing an illustration about Judah Allison and Sex and the City making the point that everyone has a story by which we interpret our lives now. So the thing about sex in the city, it's, it's make-believe. But the thing about revelation is that if you put on heaven's glasses, it is reality. It is what is really going on in our world now. A war, a battle for the worship of the nations is happening right now. And eternity or it hangs in the balance. What is now for? Well, now is for joining in the war for the worship of the nations. Now is for joining the war for the worship of the nations. You see, for seven churches of Revelation, see John, he writes this letter to them, in order for them to reimagine the world, uh, to see what is really going on. That underneath the veneer of the, the Roman peace, the Pax Romana, underneath the day-to-day, -day, there is a war that is going on. And so if you notice, to each of the seven churches, he writes, to the one who conquers. It's a call to join in, to conquer, to be, take part in the war. And so the same must be true for us. Well, let me clarify what it means to, to fight or to battle uh, in Revelation. I hope it's obvious by now. It's not taking up arms or weapons, but it's also not making inroads into politics or even attaining places or influence in society or the workplace. Sorry, let me nuance that. Uh, there's nothing inherently wrong with being in politics or doing well in society or the workplace. But this is not what John means by fighting the war. You see, to fight and to battle in Revelation well, is firstly to be holy, whatever circumstances you find yourself in. It is to be willing to follow the Lamb unto death. It is to be able to speak the truth about Jesus against the lies about him 
it is witnessing unto death. That's what it means to fight and to battle in Revelation. And the battle that we are fighting, it's a paradoxical battle. See, in chapter 13, verse 7, uh, we read about the beast who was, was allowed to make war on the saints and to, to conquer them. But at the same time, the, the saints are called to conquer the beast. And that raises the question, uh, who wins? Uh, who wins in conquering who? And the point is not that the beast will win some battles and the saints will win some. Uh, the point is that they are the same event. The issue is which perspective do we have? Because if you have an earthly perspective, it will feel like you are losing. Uh, you will suffer, perhaps a career setback or social cost. But from the heavenly perspective, uh, you are winning. You see, it's a, it's a paradoxical battle. To witness unto death is not to become a victim of the beast, but to take the fight against him and to win. That's what it means to battle in Revelation. And I hope you can see that battle is worth fighting for. Um, I'm sure some of you might know that in Singapore, we have compulsory national service. We have a conscription army. And um, I mean, I, I speak to people here and apparently it's quite impressive, you know, that for someone to be in the army before, uh, maybe that's true. But do you want to know the truth about what we think uh, back home? Uh, most of us, we think that it's a waste of time. Please don't report me. Well, rightly or wrongly, uh, the reason why we think so is because there's little or no threat. Uh, life is comfortable back home and it's not worth giving up two years of your life for. But today in our passage, the threat is real. Uh, there is nothing more significant than the war that is going on now. See, the lies of the devil is everywhere in the air that we breathe. Judgment is coming. People's lives are at stake. And the call, the call is for us to join in. Well, for most of us on this call, uh, joining in the war would look like witnessing unto death in our workplaces. Uh, for some of us, uh, some should seriously consider reducing perhaps your hours or even leaving the corporate world altogether to dedicate more time to witnessing. Because this is the story that must shape all our lives. Well, what is now for? Now is for joining in the war for the worship of the nations. Well, as we close, uh, let me share a couple of personal reflections as I was preparing for this passage. Um, my, my rector in the church I attend um, who, I, uh, who I deeply respect, uh, just turned 60 uh, last week. And um, I'm personally in my 30s. I know that's shocking. I look like I'm 21. Uh, that's not true. Um, well, I felt a bit tired. And just thinking about the prospect of yeah, double my lifetime, uh, resolutely witnessing to the truth, um, like him. And the thought of it, well, it made me feel a little bit worn out. And on reflection at the heart of it, it's because, well, I love my comfort. I want an easy, comfortable life, an easy life. And as I was thinking about it, it's, it's not that it's wrong to enjoy God's good gifts. Uh, it's good. And in his generosity, he gives us good gifts to enjoy in this world. But, but this passage was a reminder to me 
Well, if the only reason why Jesus hasn't returned is for us to witness unto death, then staying in the fight must be my overriding priority. So rest is good, but rest is so that I would have energy to engage in a war. So now it's for joining in the war for the worship of the nations. And so the question for all of us as we think about this lunchtime is this, uh, will we join in? Well, I'm, I'm sure there is much for us to chew on. Um, I'm happy for, for questions after this and also for reflections from anyone on this passage. Uh, but a verse for us as we close, verse 12. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of their God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, write this, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Let me pray. Father, we praise you for who you are. We praise you for the Lamb who was slain. And we thank you that we have this great privilege to call the nations to repent. We pray that we might give us courage to join in this war, knowing that what is at stake. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.